I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Fue su quietud la que me hizo inclinarme fascinado la primera vez que vi a los Ashlotl. Oscuramente me pareció comprender su voluntad secreta abolir el espacio y el tiempo con una inmovilidad indiferente. Después supe mejor la contracción de las branquias, el tanteo de las finas patas en las piedras, la repentina natación, algunos de ellos nadan con la simple ondulación del cuerpo. Me probó que eran capaces de evadirse de ese sopor mineral en el que pasan horas enteras. Sus ojos sobre todo me obsesionaban. Al lado de ellos, en los restantes acuarios, diversos peces me mostraban la simple estupidez de sus hermosos ojos semejantes a los nuestros. Los ojos del Ashlotl me decían de la presencia de una vida diferente, de otra manera de mirar. This is Luis Zambrano. Well, I am a biologist and an ecologist. He is an ecologist from Mexico City. And that's our producer, Justine Paradise. We spoke to Luis together. So this moment was actually really special for me because this short story that Luis just read from is one of my favorite short stories, and we got to hear it in its original Spanish. The story is called Axolotl by the Argentinian writer Julio Cortazar, um, and it's how I found out about this animal, the axolotl. Um, the story is kind of in magical realist tradition, and it's about a man who becomes kind of perilously obsessed with this creature, which is also known as the Mexican salamander. Well, the axolotl is a salamander. Uh, it's an amphibian, actually. Uh, it's, it's like a large, uh, chubby lizard. <laughs> and at the 
behind her head or his head it has uh, the gills it has a crown of gills so these gills are really striking and like we said they sort of look like a crown or a mane like maybe kind of like they're made of coral um, it's also got this big head and tiny eyes and a perfect little smile when they stare at you which happened with Julio Cortázar in the story uh, it's a very very funny and interesting moment it's something happens between you and the animal Luis started studying the axolotl about 15 years ago. Well, I've heard in English is axolotl, and ajolote is in the, Span- the Spanish version. Yeah, because I think that just phonetically, having only ever read the word, I always pronounced it axolotl. Ah, okay. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really don't know how you can pronounce in English. No, it's definitely wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so axolotls are unusual for a couple different reasons. First, they never reach adulthood, but remain in a perpetual state of what's called neoteny. Kind of like a permanent tadpole that never becomes a frog. Right. Eternal youth. So that's the first reason that they're unusual. And the second peculiar power they have is that they have this ability to regenerate their limbs. So, for instance, if a limb is amputated, they can regrow it perfectly. Not only structures like arms or legs, but they can also do that with like their spinal cord. So the axolotl is significant for humans because of that regenerative ability. So they, it's got medical and scientific potential. Well, it's also, it's just very supernatural. It's very godlike. Yes. ¿Qué tiene de especial? Híjole, qué pregunta tan compleja, tan difícil. This is Felipe Barrera. Mira, mi nombre es Felipe Barrera. Soy productor chinampero. Soy chinampero y tengo 42 años. He is a farmer in Mexico City who works with Luis. More on that later. And as he'll explain, the name Axolotl actually comes from the Aztec god, Xolotl. Pues el ajolote, culturalmente, es importante para todos nosotros, para todos los ochimilcas. Es la representación del dios Xolotl. The monstrous dog, god of heavenly fire, of lightning, and the underworld. He is the renegade twin brother of Quetzalcoatl the plumed serpent, god of wind and rain, and of creation. Es la dualidad de, de Quetzalcoatl. Es este, la noche, el día, el bien, el mal. Entonces, pues tiene ahí un significado bien fuerte, bien profundo, ¿no? This duality, Felipe says, of night and day, of Xolotl and Quetzalcoatl, is the mythos contained in the Axolotl. Esa dualidad sería terrible perderlas. This is the animal of Mexico. I don't care about eagles. I don't care about jaguars. I, uh, this is the animal that has to represent Mexico. So I fall in love. You're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And today our producer, Justine Paradise, has the story of a symbol of Mexico, an animal which, long before it was depicted by artists like writer Julio Cortázar, was celebrated in Aztec origin stories. But the wild axolotl's fate might be bound to the Aztecs by more than myth. Its life in the 21st century might rely on a landscape both very old and very human.
So uh, I hate when I go to the Google and then I put axolotls and the first picture that appears is the baby like pinky axolotl, which is nothing to do with the real ones, basically. This is Luis Zambrano again, the axolotl ecologist. Pink axolotls are albino axolotls, such as albino tigers that you will see in Las Vegas. But they are not the real axolotls. I mean, normal axolotls, the wild axolotls are are darker, are really, really dark, actually. They are almost black, greenish, brownish black, with a lot of spots. If you see a, a axolotl that has been grown in a tank and a axolotl that has been grown in Xochimilco, you will see a difference between a dog and a wolf. The difference between a dog and a wolf. And the wild axolotl lives only in one place, the last remaining fragments of Lake Xochimilco. It's in a neighborhood of Mexico City, one of the densest and largest cities in the world. Now, Xochimilco means a few different things here. It's the name of one of the Nahuatl tribes of Mexico, the Xochimilcas. It's also the name of the lake itself, which, as you'll hear, is actually more like a wetland canal system. And it's the name of that neighborhood within Mexico City. Xochimilco the lake was once part of an interconnected chain of lakes, together known as Texcoco, in the Valley of Mexico, which is a high volcanic basin riddled with springs. The system is endorheic, which means there's no outlet. It doesn't drain to the ocean. So these lakes were kind of like islands in reverse, dynamic but isolated ecosystems, beautiful conditions for endemism, which means a species that evolves for just one unique place in the world and nowhere else. And the axolotl is one of these endemic species of Mexico. Well, there is one of these theories that the Aztecs became a really, really important empire and one of the most important in America before the, the, the Spanish came because of this area, actually. The Xochimilcas realized that the mud at the bottom of the lake wetland system was incredibly fertile and could be gathered during the dry season to create what are known as floating gardens, or chinampas. This started as early as 1000 BCE, and it was an incredibly productive form of agriculture. The same thing happens in Egypt, for example, or in China, or in Mesopotamia. Once you solve the problem of food, then you, will, you can start to think in other things, such as culture, and create a huge empire. In 1325, the Aztecs took over the Xochimilcas and their floating garden technique, and then proceeded to dominate large parts of Mexico and Central America. One paper I read said at their peak, the floating gardens themselves supported 100,000 people in the capital city. So the relation between the Aztecs and the lake is, is really, really important. Uh, within the lake is the axolotl, and my hypothesis, I don't know if it is true, and it's those type of hypotheses that you never cannot be tested, is that when they created these islands, these, these chinampas, uh, these floating gardens, uh, they increased the habitat of the axolotl. So the axolotl was happy before the Aztecs arrived. When they arrived, they were happier. According to this theory, the axolotls thrived and multiplied and became symbols of Aztec civilization. Smiling, chubby little lizard gods, drifting uncannily in the maze of chinampas. But then, colonialism. And that's what the Spanish arrived to see, right? This maze. Mm -hmm. 
the Spanish, uh, when they arrived, actually they got into the city through that area. So when Hernán Cortés and his conquistadors showed up in 1519 from Spain, they were stunned by these floating gardens. Cortés actually wrote about them. Check, check, check. This is Jimmy G as a colonizer. When we saw all those towns and villages built in the water and other great towns on the dry land and then straight and level causeways leading to Mexico, we were astounded. Those great towns and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked whether it was not all a dream. It was so wonderful that I do not know how to describe the first glimpse of things never heard of, seen, or dreamed of before. And in this colonizing, 16th century Spanish naturalist Francisco Hernandez noticed the axolotl, and he named it Piscis ludicris, or ludicrous fish. But in short order, of course, true to form, the Spanish conquistadors slaughtered the citizens and infected the entire city with smallpox. Well, basically, the Spanish, uh, uh, after the conquest and they started to colonize, uh, they changed one of the most important relationships with nature that Aztecs used to have, I mean, in terms of water. In Mexico City, there's a powerful rainy season. And without proper water management, you'll have flooding. The Aztecs had designed their network of canals with this in mind to absorb these fluctuations. But the Spanish... They decided to dry out the lake. And the few survival areas were like Xochimilco. So they kept Xochimilco in order to be sure that they will have food enough for the civilization. But the the number of these islands were reduced really in high numbers. And then skipping ahead a few centuries... That was a sort of, in some way, okay until late 50s of the last century, in which the expansion of Mexico City was huge. And since then, we are worried that we can lose Xochimilco because of urbanization. I'm looking at a map right now, and it's it's really striking because you've just got incredibly dense city all around it, and then um, and then this just island of of water and canals. Yeah, it's completely surrounded by urbanization at this moment. So Chimico, as as it is a very interesting place, is also a highly touristic attraction for many people, foreigners and, and Mexicans. And there is a huge area in which you are, as a tourist, you can go there uh, and you will see a lot of huge boats that are highly characteristic and everybody, I think, internationally have seen these boats called trajineras. If you haven't experienced the trajineras, don't worry. There are plenty of travel vloggers who have made their experiences available on YouTube. These huge boats are flat and with a small roof and with flowers in the front of these roofs and then you will hear a lot of mariachis. The first, first time I went to Xochimilco as an, as an adulthood when I, it was in that area. So I said, Xochimilco is lost. Really crowded and not as relaxing as I thought it'd be. Oh, yeah, just loud. Kind of like a fiesta on the river. That is not the real Xochimilco. But there is this other part of the lake 
quieter with fewer tourist boats, a place with more chinampas, the floating gardens that still survive 2,000 years after they came to be. This part of Xochimilco, in the southern outskirts of Mexico City, is not far from the university where Luis worked. And it's there that in 2003, Luis conducted his first census of that wild axolotl population. It is very funny because I refer to that those moments as when you have a very, very bad first date and then suddenly you fall in love with your partner, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. That happened to me with the axolotl. Uh, when I started to make this research for the National Commission of Biodiversity in Mexico, uh, it was awful because it was very, very difficult to catch them and still is very, very difficult to catch them. At first they tried gill nets, then minnow traps. But that didn't work at all in the first census. So basically the thing we do is that we are in these boats for tourists, but now it's for research. They don't have flowers at the top of the roof, but, but they're still working. <laughs> <laughs> what? No alcoholic beverages. <laughs> Not drinking tequila. And, and then at the front of the boat uh, goes a f- local fisherman that knows how the axolotl make bubbles when they go up to breathe. Uh, it's a different type of bo- bubble than other bubbles that appear in the, in the system. So every 200 meters, this fisherman would throw a cast net into the water. This is a circular weighted net that drops to the bottom of the canal. And in the middle, if they saw a bubble that looked like an axolotl bubble, this fisherman would also throw the net in order to try to catch one. So before Luis did his survey, there was one other scientist who had begun studying axolotl ecology. Her name was Virginia Graue. And in 1998, her research suggested that there were about 6,000 axolotls per square kilometer in Xochimilco. So in 2003, Luis and his research team set off in their flowerless boats, saw the bubbles, cast their cast nets, and calculated that the population had diminished from 6,000 to 1,000 per kilometer squared. And then same thing, five years later in 2008, the boats, the bubbles, the cast nets, and they found that the numbers had fallen still further, from 1,000 to 100 per kilometer squared. But the worst was in 2014. I mean, because we spent about four months and we didn't find anyone. And that was something like, okay, my, my, our calculations were wrong and now they are extinct. Fortunately, we found one at the end of that study. So so we said, okay, they're still there. Hey, so, uh, so, sorry to interrupt, but in 2014, yeah. the entire census, you found one axolotl? Yeah. Axel yeah, yeah. And then you extrapolate that to 36, you said, per... Organisms per, per kilometer but, but square. But you just yeah. found, the experience was you found one. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we found one. I mean, we saw three or four more. Well, we found one only. It's hard to laugh. You know, it's, uh, no, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I know. It's a nervous laugh. but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we don't do anything, the axolot will be uh, completely extinct in the wild in, the, in 2025, something like that. But what could they do about it? That's after the break. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Y sembramos este, muchas hortalizas, ¿eh? tenemos creo como 20. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, here with Justine Paradise. And you are hearing Victor Velasco, who's showing us his garden in Xochimilco. Brócoli, cilantro. Victor Velasco, mi edad son 61 años, y pues... Victor is 61 years old. He's a dairy farmer, and he grows vegetables on his chinampa, a floating garden in Xochimilco, the lake on whose sediments Mexico City is built, and the only place left in the world to find the axolotl, the Mexican salamander, alive in the wild. Victor actually remembers when the axolotl was abundant in Xochimilco. Sí, sí incluso comerlos. De niño, este... He says, we used to eat them. When he was a kid, they'd go to neighborhood parties that would last for days, where they'd eat mitzmole. El mitzmole, que es un guisado de tomate. Spicy tomato soup, sometimes with axolotl. Pues lo que era la jolote, la cocina. I've also read that axolotls were once wrapped and baked in corn husks, axolotl tamales. But Victor says people don't know about this mitzmole dish anymore. That was back when the water quality was better, when axolotls were much more abundant, and long before axolotl ecologist Luis Zambrano had arrived on the scene to conduct his censuses, which told him the axolotl could be extinct in the wild by 2025 at the latest. Uh, okay. Well, at the beginning, I was a little bit depressed. <laughs> Luis has wanted to be a biologist since he was in third grade. And his family has spent the large part of the last 50 years in Mexico City. It's where he grew up. I mean, I, I think that all the researchers that we are dealing with this type of things, in some moment, we found a very, very ugly uh, data 
that make us sad or stressed basically i've heard the story that the person that uh, that found how the oceans will be more acid and then it will destroy all the coral reefs uh, when she saw the data she had to stand up and go to throw up i mean to the bathroom because it was really really stressful so it didn't happen like that to me but it was um uh it was really really sad but after Two or three months, I started to see that as a challenge, basically. It's something like when you see a huge mountain and you have, you know that you have to climb it. That was my feeling in the following months. I mean, it's a huge challenge. I am hired at the university to solve the huge challenge, so let's do that. The pressure on Xochimilco and on the axolotl were coming from a couple different sources. First, exotic species of fish carp and tilapia. Tilapia came from Africa and carp came from Asia, basically China, and they were Luis says the history here is that carp and tilapia were introduced in Mexico in the 70s and 80s because the idea was these fish can reproduce fast, you can fish them, you can increase the access to protein for people that don't normally have that access in Mexico. That didn't work and but create a huge problem in terms of biodiversity in lakes and rivers in Mexico. And for the axolotl, it meant that the carp ate their eggs and tilapia ate the juveniles. The second problem was the change in water quality. Xochimilco was once fed by springs, but as Mexico City grew and grew, the city diverted that spring water to meet the population's water demands instead. And in the 1950s... Xochimilco ran out of water, or was close to, to, to be completely dry out, and the solution of the government was to introduce water from the treatment plant. So wastewater. Wastewater, yeah. Uh, which is a problem because sometimes the treatment plant works and then the wastewater is with good quality, but sometimes it doesn't work properly and then the water is not particularly with good quality. And if we remember, uh, axolotls are amphibians and they are susceptible for changes in the water quality because they breathe through the skin, so the skin is very sensitive. Plus, Luis says local governments began adopting new agricultural policies, encouraging the use of fertilizers and pesticides. This is Felipe Barrera. You heard him at the top of the episode speaking about the duality of the Aztec gods. He says his family has been here six generations, 200 years. And when his father and grandfather started using agrochemicals in their plantings, it was on the advice of engineers. And as Felipe describes it, these engineers were selling a story about progress and modernity. Les marearon la cabeza con este rollo de la modernidad y el resultado es este, ¿no? El Xochimilco que tenemos actualmente, que es un Xochimilco contaminado, pues que ya no es lo mismo que era antes, ¿no? The result is a contaminated Xochimilco. Felipe says when he arrived to work on his family Chinampa, it was a disaster. Practically unusable because of the use of those agrochemicals, which of course had also affected the ecosystem, killing both insects, the main diet of the axolotl, and also just directly killing axolotls. And the last big threat, Luis says, is the noise and bustle of the city. Oh, man, okay. This is one of the most... This is the most interesting thing we may have ever done. And for being something... Wild axolotls doesn't like people. 
uh, they hide. They don't. They don't want to be around people or, or around noise. Actually, once they are surrounded by them, then they started to get ill and then they die after a lot of stress. So we found that these three huge threats, uh, exotic species, water quality, and urbanization, are the causes of the reduction of the axolotl populations. Despite all this, somehow the axolotl is still there. And thinking back to Luisa's hypothesis, the idea that the creation of this very human landscape of the Chinampas actually helped the axolotl, this is actually not all that far-fetched. In fact, ancient systems of agriculture often were good for certain wild species. In New England, for instance, Native Americans managed forests through controlled burns to encourage species like blueberries and deer. That was also true on the plains to manage for bison herds, with all kinds of ripple effects throughout the rest of the ecosystem. I mean, why do you think the axolotl is smiling anyway? So the axolotl was happy before the Aztecs arrived. When they arrived, they were happier. Today, there is no wild Xochimilco. The only thing left is the remnants of the Chinampas, and most of them are abandoned. This is Carlos Uriel Zumano. Carlos Uriel Zumano, soy colaborador del, del Laboratorio de Restauración Ecológica en el Instituto de Biología. He's one of Luis's collaborators at the Institute of Biology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. And he says there's no academic institution in the world that teaches this ancient style of agriculture, chinamperia. Te comentaba que no hay institución académica en el mundo que enseñe chinamperia. Pues se, se aprende así por, por tradición, por, por enseñanza de los padres a los hijos, de los, de los abuelos. You learn by tradition to grow vegetables organically in polycultures, interplanted to support the soil and control pests naturally. But even though Xochimilco's Canal Chinampa system has been listed as an UNESCO World Heritage Site since 1987, when Luis was getting started, many of the Chinampas were abandoned. Of the just over 2,000 square kilometers of remaining chinampas, only around 11% of them were still being farmed. While I was working in terms of to find out which are the threats, a friend of mine started to work in Xochimilco, and he told me, I mean, if you want to restore Xochimilco's uh, population, you have to work with local people because they know and they understand and they will work with the area before and after you leave, and they will work there even when the government changes or not. So we have to start to work with them. But part of the problem is... Local people is completely tired about people like me, a scientist that goes there and then pays them very, very small amount of money to make a research and then leave. For instance, government encouragement of chemical agriculture, which ended up degrading Xochimilco, or one of the other major threats to the axolotl that Luis mentioned, the invasive carp and tilapia. They were actually introduced by the UN. Or you could draw this back to the Spanish conquistadors, who were completely awed by the chinampas, but still thought they had a superior water management strategy, and so they drained the lake and totally transformed the city. So if a family had been there for generations, they might have seen ideas come and go. Experts parachuting in, perhaps with PhDs, state titles, theories and grants, and they would have seen some projects fail and been left to live with the consequences. So it's into this environment that Luis, supported by the university and local government, comes in and pitches his idea to the Xochimilcas, 
Let's keep doing Axolotl censuses, but let's do more than just sit by and watch. Let's work together, let's collaborate to revive more chinampas and grow organic vegetables in the polluted water and figure out how to create a refuge without carp and tilapia. What was the process like of recruiting locals um, to help you on this project? So, like, What were those conversations like? Oh, it's the, they are really, really harsh, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the first meeting I had with local fishermen, they, the nicest thing they told me that it, it was like I was a really, really stupid guy. That I believe uh, because I was, had a PhD, then that didn't mean that they knew anything about Xochimilco. Part of Luisa's strategy has just basically been to stick around, to not go away. Was it, did you have to go have coffee with them? Was it in public meetings? Like, how did you, how did you, this happen? All of that. Um, plus, get drunk with them. It's very important, actually, to go, uh, to go with them all the time, stay with them. I mean, the thing is, like, I can't do that all the time by myself. So I have a very nice team. They have to see you in the bad moments, in the work moments, when everybody's working really, really hard. And then you have to be with them working hard. And in the good moments when all of them are drunk and then you have to be drunk with them in order to see you are, you are my brother, basically. <laughs> it took a few years, but together the Chinamperos and the Biological Institute started a project with the dual goal of increasing the amount of chinampas and the amount of axolotl. And they created a refuge by constructing small barriers with water filters around the working chinampas. Three, four meters barriers mostly, in which carp and tilapia cannot get into. Simple but effective. One 2014 study found that water transparency went up by 50% in the refuge. It was working. I mean, the island is alive and we saw that the axolotls could survive very well. And not only axolotls, also native species such as crayfish and a small silverfish also. That's Felipe Barrera again, Chinampero. He says the Chinamperia cannot be done individually. The Chinampa is a collective. Son varias generaciones que ya hemos crecido con ese discurso de la competitividad, de de vaya de Felipe is saying that for a few generations, farming was defined by competition in Mexico City. He also says that this is from the pressure of industrial agriculture on peasant farmers, big agriculture driving vegetable prices down. So he says the attitude in the community was, ignore your neighbor and get the best prices. And that has fractured the social fabric of Xochimilco. Pues ha, ha venido a fracturar mucho del tejido social que, que existía aquí en Xochimilco. Tradicionalmente, hace 500 años, las chinampas se construían este, en comunidad. Eran Felipe says 500 years ago, chinampas were built by hundreds of families coming together. Este, esa fragmentación eh, pues, también es resultado de lo que tenemos actualmente. But right now, Xochimilco is fragmented. 
Lipe says this is not just the story of Xochimilco. It's the story of the campesino, the peasant farmer in Mexico, which, he says, is a disaster. Ecologically, it looks like the refuge is a better place for axolotls, but the project itself is still small. Right now, there are just 10 working chinampas. Felipe says to return to the construction of that collaborative social fabric will be a challenge. Eh, es un reto. For him, the big question is how to find a dignified living through small-scale agriculture. ¿Cómo poder vivir de forma digna este, de la agricultura? Esa es la, la gran pregunta, ¿no? I think that the most important thing of this is the change of the attitude. As a scientist, I don't go to teach them how to do the things. As a scientist, I go there to understand how this social ecosystem works and then help to make the process easier and then receive the, their ideas and give another ideas and then generate new ideas from everybody. That is my role, and, and not to teach everybody because I knew everything. Uh, so that is the thing that increases the trust and has been increased the trust in the last years. Uh, it's not easy, uh, but has been increasing the trust, basically. En términos este, biológicos es eso muy importante, es un indicador de que el ecosistema está en buen estado. Para los chinampeos, right now, Luis is in the process of seeking funding for their next axolotl census. If they get it, they'll be able to add 12 more chinampas as well. And like Carlos Uriel Zumano says, one of Luis's collaborators at the university, the axolotl are an indicator species, a sign that things are going well. But then we asked him... For you, the axolotl, why is the axolotl specifically important for you? Para mí es es importante porque porque en términos biológicos Carlos says again, you know, I'm saying axolotls they're important as a biological indicator species. But y porque en algún momento me gustaría probar un axolote, ¿no? He says at some point he'd love to try an axolotl. Este, platico mucho con los chinamperos y He's talked a lot with the chinamperos, and they say y ellos dicen que, que es muy rico, que, it's pretty delicious. Outside In was produced this week by Justine Paradise and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby, Daniela Ali, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special shout-out this week to Jimmy G, who, much to his displeasure, graciously voiced the role of Cortez for this story. Also, thank you to Lucino Molesio for helping us connect to the Chinamperos in Mexico City. 
Erica Jenick is our executive producer, and Maureen McMurray is capable of escaping that mineral lethargy in which she spends whole hours. Music from Komiku, Jan Tarin, Jazar, and La Venganza de Chitara. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For this episode, we also relied on the book of Barely Imagined Beings, a 21st century bestiary by Casper Henderson. Definitely check that out to learn more about the astrolotl and other incredible creatures. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. I guess uh, maybe can you describe what it's like to hold one? Uh, yeah, it's a slammy. <laughs> I mean, they should. Like... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.